First Thessalonians chapter one. Last week, we looked at the first few verses of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And in case you weren't here last week, and for the sake of our college students, uh, I haven't stopped preaching the book of Acts, and we didn't finish it while you were gone. Um, fat chance of that happening, right? Um, but but uh, we didn't finish it while you were gone, and, and I, didn't, I didn't skip out on it, but we got to Acts 17 where Paul... Uh, visited and planted the church there in Thessalonica. And so we decided to take a little bit of a closer look at Paul's assessment of his ministry there in Thessalonica found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And so we looked at these first few verses of 1 Thessalonians 1 last week and we came across um, what I consider to be one of the most amazing statements uh, in all of Paul's letters, and it's found there in verse 4, where Paul says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. And we considered last week how exactly Paul could make such a statement. Did he have some sort of supernatural insight into God's eternal will? And the answer to that is no. He was reflecting on the evidence that he had seen in the lives of of the believers at Thessalonica. Specifically, three things that he saw. He saw their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope, as he described them in verse 3. And last week, I encouraged you to evaluate your own testimony to see if the same evidences could be seen in your own life. But that, as they say, is uh, is not the entire story. Paul's confidence in the Thessalonians' election was supported by the nature of his ministry in Thessalonica and by the way the believers responded to the truth that Paul preached. And that's really what the rest of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is about. Next week, we're going to take a closer look at how the Thessalonians received the gospel and what happened to them as a result. But today, I'd like for us to focus our attention on the entire ministry of evangelism and discipleship that Paul and his team practiced. Let's take a look here. First Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm just going to read down through verse 5. So follow along as I read. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. There are some very troubling trends within the modern practice of evangelism. Let me just put it that way. And if we don't recognize these trends and refute them, then we will, I fear, undermine any attempts that we might make to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the people of Walworth County. Some approach the ministry of evangelism with an overemphasis on decision-making. These folks will sometimes put a premium on door-to-door cold-call witnessing, um, where they will try to share the gospel in just a few minutes 
and get someone to make a, a decision for Christ right there on the spot. Now, maybe some of you were reached uh, by the, or with the gospel by someone who is following this kind of approach. And if so, then I'll rejoice right along with you that God chose to save you through the faithful witness of some concerned soul. But what's interesting as we read 1 Thessalonians uh, is that we don't read about how Paul rejoiced because the believers had prayed to accept Christ as their Savior. Nor does Paul speak about the effectiveness of the Romans' road in evangelism or some other, um, some other method that he used. Instead, Paul focuses on the entire scope of his ministry there, which was not accomplished in just a few minutes of conversation in someone's doorway. We'll take a closer look at this aspect of Paul's ministry in just a few minutes. But there's another trend of evangelism that I want to, 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 to mention as well. And that is, it's this trend that focuses on the love of God and salvation uh, to the exclusion of God's justice. It sounds an awful lot like God wants you to be happy and fulfilled in your life. And all you need to do is commit your life to Christ. But there's no mention of your sin There's no mention of how God's holiness compels him to judge sin with eternal damnation. There's only a focus on how much God loves you. And I, again, I want to be careful how I say this. There's nothing wrong with us telling uh, someone, with us sharing the love of God with sinners. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to understand that Paul's ministry involved a whole lot more than uh, than just telling people that God loved them. The gospel uh, ministry and any real true gospel ministry must include some expression, some explanation of God's righteous wrath for our sin and Christ's perfect substitutionary death. And so we have potential dangers to avoid. I I think it's important for us as we consider what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. That Paul's focus in the ministry here is really about the work of God. It's not about learning a new technique or some approach that is fail-safe and foolproof. It's about learning to depend and trust in God. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. There are four observations that Paul makes about his ministry, the nature of his gospel ministry in this verse. The first one is negative, and the next three are positive. So I want to look at that negative one first. What does Paul say first in verse 5? He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. That is, it was not just a logical argument or an emotional appeal. Paul's preaching included something more. We won't take time to look back there. We've already done this last week. But but if we went back to Acts chapter 17, Luke does give us a little bit of an indication of how Paul preached the gospel when he came to the, the city of Thessalonica. And what we understand about it is this. Paul used the Old Testament scriptures that the Jews knew. And he was able to use their own expectation of the Messiah to present Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. 
I think it's significant for us to note that Paul didn't use um, emotional appeals. He focused on convincing them of the truth about Jesus. He challenged them to weigh the evidence to see whether Jesus' life truly fit the Old Testament prophecies. And I think sometimes we might scoff at this kind of approach, a, a careful, reasoned um, approach to evangelism, explaining and justifying and defending arguments. Sometimes we have a tendency, or I, I don't know, we, I, I use that word generally speaking, not all, not everyone is like this, but sometimes there's a tendency for us to be critical of attempts to defend the truth to stand and, 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 you know, sometimes get into, wrestle with some of the meatier, more challenging obstacles to faith that people have. Maybe we'd be tempted to say, listen, it's just faith anyways. Let's just, all they need to know is the gospel. Just get them to trust Christ. But we see what Paul did was Paul didn't try to bypass their reasoning. He didn't try to bypass their minds. Paul approached the Jews in a very rational and reasonable way, setting the evidence out before them and encouraging them, challenging them to, to, to see that the evidence proved that Jesus truly was the Messiah. And sometimes I think we have the, the we make the mistake of distinguishing between what we call head knowledge and heart knowledge. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody talk about that. I, I I know that I've heard messages preached on the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. I've heard people preach about, you know, you're 18 inches away from heaven because they've failed to get the knowledge from here down to here. Well, I think that that kind of mentality is mistaken. I think that if we speak about head knowledge as if it's a bad thing and heart knowledge as if it's the only thing worth having, uh, we are... We're wrong. Now why is that? Because heart knowledge is impossible without head knowledge. We can't put our faith in something that we don't know and understand. One pastor said it this way, Christianity is and must be a faith that involves the mind just as it is and must be a faith that involves the heart. The problem comes in when there is a radical disconnect between the two. You see, I don't think we should emphasize a person having faith to the exclusion of a person having knowledge. Those two things aren't disconnected. We want to be people of faith, but we need to be people whose faith is rooted in knowledge of the Word of God. And so those two things work together. The danger is that sometimes we might emphasize faith to the exclusion of knowledge. And that's what we see happening in some churches today. All that matters is that you believe. It doesn't matter really what you believe. If your belief is wrong, well, you know, you're sincere. That, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. The truth matters. Understanding and knowing the truth matters. Now, I will admit, it's not enough to just know the truth, is it? Just knowing the truth apart from faith, is not any better. 
And so we have two potential problems to avoid. I think it's interesting. What did Jesus say to the Jews? John chapter 5. We don't turn there. Um, you can look at the chapter in the middle of John chapter 5, though. Jesus spoke to the Jews, and he, he criticized the Pharisees. But what's interesting is he didn't criticize them for having too much head knowledge. He didn't say, well, you're too intellectual. You think about things too much. You have too many answers to the questions. He didn't criticize them for all of the time they spent memorizing and learning and studying the Word of God. What did he criticize them for? Here's what he said to the Pharisees. He said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And then get this, he says, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. He said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, the problem with the Jews wasn't that they didn't know enough. And it wasn't that they knew too much. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a problem with their knowledge. It was a problem of faith. They refused to believe what they knew. But Jesus didn't criticize them and say, listen, you should just go out and experience this. Forget that, you know, set your Bible down and go and have some experience of the Christian life. Jesus didn't say that to them. He said that when you read and study the Scriptures, it should point you directly to me. That within the pages of Scripture, as we learn, as we study, as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christ, it should lead us directly into a relationship with Him. And so there is not a conflict between the knowledge of the Word of God and faith in the author of the Word. There's not a conflict here. Paul, when he appealed to the Thessalonians, he says it was not just in word only. In other words, it wasn't just human uh, reasoning, human speech. It wasn't just about knowledge, nor was it just an appeal to their emotion, to their heart. In fact, Paul's appeal to the Jews in Thessalonica was not strictly an appeal to, to their minds. I would put it this way. I would say it was an appeal through their minds. He didn't try to bypass their mind to get to their heart so that they would believe by faith something that they could not justify in their own mind. Instead, he appealed to their reason so that they might believe with their hearts that which their minds understood. And I think this principle is very important. It's a fundamental principle for us if we consider our role as witnesses. We have a responsibility as we proclaim the gospel to not bypass a person's mind, not set aside questions and challenges and conflicts and real legitimate issues that arise and say, ah, that's just for academics, that's all stuffy stuff. We want to experience. No, we need to understand the truth matters. And as we stand and we appeal to people on the basis of what is true, it's through that truth, through that, that understanding of the truth that their hearts can come under conviction and they can believe and be saved. Now, what does all this have to do? 
Let's come back to our passage here because, because Paul initially starts with that negative. He says, our gospel did not come to you in word only. That's the negative. It wasn't just in word. It wasn't just some sort of um, uh, intellectual or emotional appeal. Yes, there was this, 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 he, he, it was, it was an, an approach to the mind. He did approach their mind. He challenged their minds with the intent of going, uh, of challenging their mind to understand the truth and their heart to believe it in faith. But there's something more here, and this is what I want to get at this morning. Paul faithfully preached Christ from the Scriptures. He proved that Christ fulfilled the expectation of the prophets. But then in verse 5 here, he says there were three key spiritual elements which explains Paul's confidence in the Thessalonians' election. We talked about that a little bit last week. How is it possible that Paul could say without any doubt that he knew the Thessalonians had been chosen by God? How can any man know if another man is chosen by God? And yet Paul seems to indicate that he does here. What's the evidence? Well, the first thing we looked at last week was the evidence of their life. He saw what had happened. He saw the, the, the fruit that was produced by God's grace in their life. But there's something else. Because Paul understood that his ministry, when he preached the gospel, that there was something spiritual going on. It wasn't just Paul preaching and, and, and offering a convincing argument. How does he say it? He says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. It's interesting, I think, that Paul focuses first on the power of the gospel. Understand here, he's not criticizing the word of God when he says that it didn't come in word only. Because the gospel must come in word. And we as God's servants must be those who preach the word of God. The issue isn't that there's something wrong with the word, but there is something wrong with preaching that is nothing more than human reasoning. If that's all preaching is, then it's ineffective without power. You see, without the power of the gospel, man's word is unable to accomplish the kind of transformation that's necessary to overcome sin and to ensure eternal life. Another way to maybe put this is that it's that our word is the necessary but insufficient cause to change the hearer apart from the power of God. It's God's word and his power that are necessary. Paul understood that. He says, listen, we didn't just come to you and, and offer convincing arguments. We didn't just come to you and offer eloquent speech. It wasn't just word only. It wasn't just my wisdom. He says it was in power. Why? Because the gospel is powerful. And Paul understood that. That's what he says in Romans, right? Chapter 1 and verse 16. He says the, power, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And we can confidently say that no one, and I mean no one, is saved apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. James Montgomery Boyce said it this way. He said, this is the way of conversion. Because what God does is to take his word, which is not the mere word of men, but the word of God, and use it in a supernatural way to create spiritual life within the heart of the one listening. You see, there's something spiritual going on when the gospel is preached. 
when we understand this, that the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful. Paul said, listen, when I preached to you, it wasn't just words. It was power because it was the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Once there was a a dying woman in England who testified that she was saved by reading a piece of wrapping paper in a package that came from Australia. The crumpled pages contained a sermon by British pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The sermon, which was first preached in England, then printed in America, shipped to Australia, and then sent back to England as wrapping paper was the means of converting a precious soul in the same city where the sermon was first preached. That is the power of the word that Paul is talking about. It's not about delivery. It's not about style. It's not about uh, uh, ingenuity. It's not about skill and, 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 and the, the craft and the art of preaching or speaking. It's not about any of that stuff. Paul understood. He said, listen, our gospel, when it came to you, it didn't come in, in just word. It wasn't just our human speech and our human ability to speak to you. There was something else here. There's spiritual power in the gospel. And then the second thing that he mentions, he goes on here, the second spiritual aspect of the gospel ministry, not just the word of the gospel, but the Holy Spirit. And he says there in verse 5, he says, "Our our, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Paul recognized that their salvation was accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And this is a lesson we need to learn, we need to understand. That when a lost person is saved, it can only be because the Holy Spirit has worked. Paul understood that. He says something to that effect in in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Where he says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul believed Jesus' promise that when the Holy Spirit came, he would convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And Paul didn't depend on tricks or gimmicks when he was preaching, when he was witnessing the gospel. He depended on the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ in the effective hand of the Holy Spirit of God. And I'm convinced that you and I have to have the same faith that the Holy Spirit will apply His Word to the hearts of men if we're faithful to clearly proclaim it. The uh, great preacher and evangelist Harry Ironside once said this, I thought this was really fascinating, the mere statement of gospel truth apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, is not likely to produce such results as we're seeing in Thessalonica. It is true that God, in His sovereignty, may use His own word, no matter who proclaims it, or even if it is found on the printed page. He has often done so. 
His general method, however, is to empower devoted men to set forth the word with clearness and in the energy of the Holy Spirit. Then the results are assured. Now I'm convinced that if we truly believe what Scripture teaches, that we'll depend on the Holy Spirit to produce fruit for our faithful efforts in preaching the gospel. And instead of measuring success by the number of professions of faith that we can record, we'll measure our success by the faithfulness with which we execute our mission. And so Paul says that the word of God, or the gospel rather, he says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. It wasn't just the word of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, but the assurance of Paul's experience. Now this expression here in much assurance is kind of vague. Paul doesn't really, you know, that, that term doesn't really light up any significance that we can identify exactly what does he mean by assurance. Some people have suggested it was the Thessalonians' assurance. That they were assured of their faith. I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think Paul and his team, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they understood with with great confidence the power of what they were preaching. Now how is it possible that Paul and Silas and Timothy could stand up before these people in Thessalonica and preach a gospel message with absolute confidence? Why? Because they had experienced it. They knew what they were speaking of because they had firsthand experience of the power of the gospel in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Of course, I don't think this should surprise us at all. (coughs) If a man claimed to find an oasis in the desert, but he had never actually drank the water, and then he told us that the water was sweet, why would we believe him? We seek someone who has experienced it. We want to know that he has tasted it and experienced it and knows firsthand. So when Paul preached the gospel, he was preaching something that he had himself partaken of. I think that's an important aspect here. For anyone to proclaim the gospel, which is a message of deliverance, hope, and life, For someone to proclaim that message while still obviously bound in sin, without hope and living a miserable life, that person would be a hypocrite. Paul knew this to be true. And that's why here in this verse he emphasized, he said, we preached in much assurance. And then he says this, he says, you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. I think what Paul's getting at is he's getting at the, 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 the kind of change that had taken place, the testimony of God's grace in Paul's life, in Silas's and Timothy's life. When they preached the gospel, it was evident, not just to them, but to the people who heard it, that that very same gospel they preached had done a miraculous work in their own life. I mean, just think about Paul. And we don't know we don't know much about the background of 
Silas. And what we know about Timothy is he was a young man. We know very little about his past before he met Paul. But think about Paul, a man who was a murderer. That Acts chapter 9 says that he was breathing out violence and murder against the church. This was a man who was an enemy of God's people, an enemy of the church, an enemy of Christ. And yet it was the power of the word of God, directed by the Holy Spirit of God, that had completely changed Paul's life. And so as Paul stood before the Thessalonians and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, It was evident beyond any doubt. No one could suggest that somehow Paul was a fake because the evidence of his own life, his own testimony, proved that the gospel changes people. But the power of the gospel in the hands of the Holy Spirit transforms people from being enemies of God to being his servants. That's exactly what had happened to Paul. And of course, the same thing had happened to Silas and Timothy whether they were murderers or not, they were transformed from enemies of God to being his servants. And their testimony, as they stood and proclaimed that message, was so vitally important. Paul, we know, was very aware of how important it was for his life to be consistent with the message that he proclaimed. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27, Paul said, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And he understood that for someone to proclaim the gospel, there needed to be evidence, consistent evidence in their life of the power of the gospel, of the grace of God. Paul's commitment was that his life would support his preaching of the gospel rather than erode the Thessalonians' faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. And because Paul had seen firsthand the magnitude of God's grace, he could preach it with confidence, knowing that even the most hardened, rebellious sinner was not a match for the convincing power of the Holy Spirit and the transforming power of God's grace. I believe this is what Paul means when he says they preached the gospel in much assurance. As they had first received God's gift of salvation, so they could offer that gift to others, trusting that their preaching would bear fruit in the hearts of those convicted by the Spirit. And we need to have that same confidence in God's wisdom and power as we seek to be witnesses for our Savior. Let the Lord save those He will. And let him use our transformed lives as a backdrop for his grace. As we come to a close this morning, I'd like to ask a question, a couple of questions. But mainly, what's the point? We can see what Paul has said. He knows with absolute confidence that the Thessalonian believers are truly the elect of God. They have been chosen by God, saved by his grace. And he knows that because his ministry was not a ministry that was was just a ministry of word. It wasn't just his own speech, his own wisdom, his own ability. 
His ministry was a ministry that, that, was, that reflected the power of God, and the, whole, the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And the absolute confidence that he had preaching grace because he himself had experienced grace. Why does it matter, though, how Paul ministered in a city halfway around the world 2,000 years ago? As I thought about this this week, I thought, you know, how does this affect us as a church? Well, I think this, that, that actually the model, the example that Paul gives us here is a model that, that we strive for here in our church. And I, I can't speak about what happened or what, what um about what the church here has done in years past before we came. Been here just a little over two years. But I can tell you this, that in my ministry here, in my leadership in this church, this example from Paul is very instructive. You see, when, when we preach here in Emmanuel Baptist Church, we don't use manipulation or trickery of speech. We proclaim the word of truth in complete dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit and with full assurance that the same power which has saved us and is working to shape us into the image of Christ will work effectively in the lives of those who hear us. We're convinced that the Spirit is able to use His word to transform those whom the Lord draws to Himself so that we don't need to revert to gimmicks or chase the latest church growth fads. If we're doing that, we're failing, by the way. Just look around. It's not working. I don't know. And all that doesn't mean, by the way, it doesn't mean that we won't work to convince others of the truth of God's word. But I think it means that we have to recognize there's something more that's required to make men disciples of Christ. Something more than Fancy preaching, something more than relevant activities or uh, contemporary music or anything else that we might think to do. There's something more, something spiritual. If we as a church are seeking... And it's my intent that we are. If we're seeking to make men and women disciples of Christ, then what we need is we need the Spirit's convicting and grace-bestowing power right here. And so what do we do? What do I do as a pastor in this church so that we will not be focus just on human wisdom and human means to achieve spiritual ends, which never works. What is it that we do? Well, I'll tell you what we do. We pray. We pray every Sunday. We pray that we may rely on the Lord rather than on ourselves. When I say we pray every Sunday, I mean it. Every Sunday before the service starts. And we spend time praying, asking the Lord to use us, to work through us, 
asking him to do a work, recognizing that we are completely and totally incapable in ourselves. It's one of the reasons why we have a time of quiet prayer for you as well at the start of the service. So that you can pray the same thing. So that you can pray for God to work. For the gospel to have free reign. And the Holy Spirit to convict the hearts of men and women in this church. And our children as well. I was thinking just at the beginning of our service when I was sitting over here. We're praying. And I thought, Lord, I still can't believe. I still can't believe what you've done with me. I still can't believe it, that you put me in this position as a pastor of a church. It blows me away. I still can't even imagine, God, what were you thinking? <laughs> you gave me the keys to drive the car. Whoa, what were you thinking? Man, I can't believe it. It amazes me. Never in a million years, never in a million years would I have ever anticipated that God was going to do that. That he was going to take me from warm, sunny, <laughs> southern New Mexico, okay, teaching in a job I didn't like, with working... For people I didn't, I didn't get along with. <laughs> but I had no idea. I never dreamed that God would ever take me and place me in this ministry. I didn't anticipate. I never saw it coming. But God did it. And so as I sat up here this morning, I just prayed and said, God, I'm amazed. I'm blown away. I'm completely unqualified. I feel completely inadequate. I can't do it. But that's the spirit we have to have. That's the approach we need to have. Each one of us, if we're going to preach, if we're going to proclaim the truth. And so what do we do? Every Sunday, we take time to pray. Not just on Sundays, but but we do this on Sunday when we gather together. We take time to pray. We seek God's power working through us rather than our own cleverness or skill. We determine to continue preaching faithfully, trusting God to do His work in the hearts and lives of those who hear us, no matter how long it takes. You know why? Because this is ministry on God's timetable. That's what this is. That's what we're doing here at this church. We're doing ministry on God's timetable, not our timetable. Because He is going to receive the glory, not us. Now all of that is nice and well and good for the church. But what about for us as individuals? How does this affect each of us as a Christian? Well, I think in in much the same way Paul's testimony applies to us as individual Christians. See, it's not with flowery speech. It's not with clever arguments that we're going to reach our neighbors and our friends and our family members and our loved ones with the gospel. And if it's not with, uh, if it's not with 
clever arguments, then I guess that means you don't need to worry about whether you're good at witnessing. Because okay. you're not going to be the key anyways. And I'm not going to be the key anyways. When we share the gospel with someone, it's not about how clever we are. It's not about how, how polished we are. It's not a matter of us having every answer to every question. No one does but God. It's not a matter of, of feeling prepared and feeling adequate to do it. And when we understand that, then we don't have to worry about whether we're good at witnessing. Here's a question for you. Just thought of, I thought of this this morning. Isn't the Holy Spirit good enough to make up for your weakness? I mean, have you ever tried to talk to somebody about Christ and you just, you just don't, you just didn't have the answers. You just didn't know the right things to say. You just didn't have the right responses and and you just felt like you just weren't good enough to do this. Somebody else who's better at this should do it than me. But isn't the Holy Spirit able to make up for our weakness? But you're not going to go even beyond that. I think this is really neat. Think about this for a second. It's not just that the Holy Spirit can make up for our weakness. He uses our weakness as weakness. He, he, he chooses those of us who are weak. And He uses our weakness. Why? Because our weakness is something he can use to display his amazing grace. When we depend on the Spirit instead of our own strengths and abilities, then we will avoid the dangers of a love-only gospel and of a high-pressure salesmanship. We'll be willing to patiently Proclaim the gospel and trust God for the outcome. There's a leaflet written by Leslie Flynn called Keep On Keeping On. And he tells of a man who handed out gospel tracts on a street corner for years. After years and years of handing out tracts and not seeing anyone trust Christ as their Savior, he became discouraged and he quit. Two years later, he happened to pass that same street corner and he saw a man standing there handing out tracts. So he walked over to the man and struck up a conversation. And the man said, well, a little more than two years earlier, he had received a track at that street corner and had trusted Christ as his Savior. And the man said, many times I've come back here to find that man to thank him. But he never came back. So I decided he must have died and gone on to his reward. That's why I've taken his place. The truth is, it's not about us and our ability. It wasn't about Paul and his ability in Thessalonica. He preached the gospel. He preached it, and Paul was willing. And, and, and we've seen this already, and we continue to see it in the life of Paul. He just kept on preaching, proclaiming the word of God, trusting, not in his own ability to convince someone else, but trusting that as he preached and clearly proclaimed the truth, that the power of the gospel in the hands of the Holy Spirit 
would turn the hearts of men. And so this morning, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to commit to preaching the gospel. Not in word only. Not trying to be clever or good enough. Preach it in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. And let the Lord save those that He will, using our transformed lives as a backdrop for His grace. Let's close with prayer.